Father, would you prepare us heart, soul, and strength for your word tonight? And Father, just fasten us down. Help us to be a people who are well situated here in the barn to hear your word. We pray that our ears will be open to hear what your spirit is saying to us. Pray that our our hearts may be receptive and joyful in these things. And pray, Father, that my uh, sorrow over us finishing the Psalms would be far outshined by the glory and joy of having been in these songs of praise. And that joyful notion, Father, that we may very well be singing these exact same songs throughout eternity. And that's a comforting and encouraging thought. And Lord Jesus, we just long to be with you where you are, but we are grateful tonight that you would be here where we are. As we open your word again, we pray, guide us through these things and teach us, Spirit of the living Christ, in Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 reads, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That's a marvelous verse. And in that time, we recognize that all prayers for deliverance will be over. There will be no more songs of suffering passed along, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The Bible promises us that day is coming when God wipes away the final tear and there will be nothing after that but joy and praise and worship. Well, the grand finale of the book of Psalms is strikingly similar to the grand finale of God's mighty plan. It ends with a new beginning. There is nothing from Psalm 145 on out but praise and worship. Now it begins with Psalm 145. We looked closely at that on Sunday, the crown jewel of praise. That great declaration of the king and his kingdom. I want to start there and just read a couple of verses out of it to get us get the ball rolling here. Psalm 145, verse 1, I will extol you, my God, the King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, highly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Down in verse 11, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. To make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Psalm 145, you may recall, you Bible students, that the old rabbis called it the Ashrei. Meaning happy or praiseworthy, the, the happy psalm, the praiseworthy psalm. And happy is the person who develops the kingdom mindset. We talked about it again today in our staff meeting this morning. That that's, there is joy and happiness there. That if we can function with the mindset of the kingdom, regardless of what's happening around us in our lives, we have hope. We have a future laid out before us. We have encouragement. So even in the midst of the strongest and greatest struggles that we face, the kingdom mindset. Remember what Paul said, that the kingdom of heaven is not eating and drinking, it's righteousness 
It's joy, it's peace in the Holy Spirit. And that's where we are right now, in the middle point, the in-between of the kingdom. Remember Sunday, Jesus came. He was coronated that first time, riding into Jerusalem in that triumphal entry. And He will be coronated the third time, Revelation 19 tells us, when He comes again. But in the in-between, we coronate Jesus in our hearts. And it's so important, and I'm just grasping these things, that we spend too much time, I believe, in the church on the born again and not enough time on the kingdom. Jesus said you're, you're born again that you might see the kingdom. That's the whole reason for being born again. It's like saying a child is born is born to stay in the hospital. No, a child that is born is born for life. To come out of the hospital and into the world and experience life. That's the same thing with us. And I have been praying that God would help me with this paradigm shift. One who is born again to see the kingdom. It's moving from the mentality of the kingdoms of the world. We watch these things, you know. Egypt and Libya and the Middle East is all a a buzz right now. The United States of America. All these kingdoms. But we need to move from the kingdoms of earth. Move our concerns to the kingdom of heaven. That kingdom that is lasting and eternal. And when we do that, there is an inherent joy that comes with it. When we become kingdom-minded, just as David was, it changes us. You know, it changes who we are. It changes how we live. It changes what we do with our day-to-day. It changes everything. I think most of all, a kingdom mindset evokes a heart of worship. If you are looking forward to the kingdom, you cannot help but worship God, long to worship God every opportunity you get. And as we come to Psalm 146, the praises start to roll. They start to pick up speed. I was born at the top of a hill. Grew up in a house at the top of a hill. 26811 Saddleback Drive, Mission Viejo, California. That was my residence. And uh, living up there was great. We had a beautiful view out over the valley, the Saddleback Valley, and, and all of Mission Viejo out of our backyard. And I enjoyed living up there. It was a good place to grow up, except for one thing, basketball. When you live at the top of the hill... And the basketball bounces off the rim and out the end of the driveway. Guess where it goes? Down the hill. I had more scraped knees chasing basketballs down the hill. And it just went faster and faster. If you've ever been on a hill and seen a basketball go, it doesn't slow down for you. You can call out whatever you want. It doesn't wait. It just picks up speed as it goes. Many was the time I just said, let it go, man. Let it go. We'll walk down and an hour later we'll find the ball down there somewhere. Well, it's kind of like that with the Psalms, only if you can imagine it backwards. We're at the bottom of the hill, the ball gets loose and starts rolling, but as it goes up the hill, it's going faster and faster and faster. And that's the way it feels when you start to read through. You come out of Psalm 145 and you're, you're revved up. This is kingdom stuff, man. I'm excited about that. You hit Psalm 146 and suddenly it just starts to roll. And it starts to increase. It revs up. Psalm 146 picks up as the ball is rolling. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Now these last five psalms, like the Hillel psalms, the great Hillel, those songs that start out with hallelujah and end with hallelujah. Same thing with these last five. You could almost take these last five and just tuck them together with the Hallel because it's all hallelujah. It's all praise the Lord, one after another. 
I will sing praises to my God while I have being. Verse 3, do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. We were made to worship. As much as we were made to breathe air, mankind was made with the innate desire placed in our hearts to worship. So we must worship. And we all worship. Every one of us. Not just here in the barn. Every human being walking the face of the earth, past, present, future, was made to worship and does worship. We'll either worship the Creator... Or we'll worship the created things. But we have this incredible desire to worship. That's why people watched the Academy Awards this last week. I didn't. I don't even care how it went. But there's this this weird thing about the stars. And there's this weird thing about musical artists. And this weird thing about people with names, you know, out there that are worshipped. People want to be near them. Oh, I saw so-and-so, you know. Why? Because we were made to worship. Because there's something in us that wants to look up to someone, something else. And tragically, our world is so focused on looking up to man. Other human beings. Like Charlie Sheen. I mean, he is losing it. Christina Aguilera is now in trouble with the law for being found out in her car drunk somewhere. All these people are supposed to be examples to us. Well... We're made to worship something. The thing is, and the psalmist tells us, worship of anything or anyone other than God will never satisfy. It will only disappoint us. The most princely of men will disappoint. David did. If there was anyone worth adulating, anyone worth patterning your life after, it would have been King David. What a man of God. What a poet among poets. A king of kings. But not the king of kings. And so, David disappoints greatly. Even the most beautiful among women will go down to the grave, the psalmist tells us. Notice verse 4 again here. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. A couple of things to note here. In this part of the psalm, verse 5 gives us two words I want to point out. Help and hope. Help and hope. God is our help. Mortal instruction is as helpless as mortal man. Mortal instruction is as helpless as mortal man. He says the thoughts of man perish. And how true that is. It's not just that our bodies perish, but our thoughts, our ideas, tend to go down to the grave as well. I've been studying ahead a bit in Proverbs and getting ready to open up that great book. And it's wonderful. And it's God-breathed wisdom there. By contrast, human Proverbs and wisdom often just fall apart. If you start speaking human Proverbs that have been shared down through the years, they contradict one another. For example, is it look before you leap? Or is it he who hesitates is lost? Which one? Because I can slow down, take care before I take the step, or I can get moving. Which one is it? Is it you get what you pay for, Spence? Spencer told me he he had singing lessons. 
and he paid a dollar a lesson. And I said, you get what you pay for. Okay. Well, is it that? You get what you pay for, or are the best things in life free? Well, which one is it? How about this? Leave well enough alone, or does progress never stand still? You see, as you begin to stack up the Proverbs of man, they, they contradict. They are spoken for a circumstance in a certain time, and they're ever-changing and ever-contradicting. It's not that way with the Lord. Do you know in the book of Proverbs there's not a single contradiction among all the Proverbs that are given there? Not one. It's an astounding book. We're not going there tonight, but it's incredible. Because his thoughts are perfect. A man's thoughts go down to the grave. Man's thoughts don't hold up. His thoughts are perfect and eternal and precious. Psalm 139, verse 17, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! From time to time, I I quote from the Mishnah, collected uh, oral traditions of the Jewish people and, and the Talmud. And I'll quote the old rabbis. Every now and then. You, you probably are used to me doing that. Rabbi Judah's saying from the Mishnahs, the codified uh, sayings and, and laws and commentaries in the Talmud of the Torah, of Jewish law. But remember this, and it's important, and I probably should say this more often. Just because it's from the Talmud doesn't mean it's right. Just because it's written in the Mishnah doesn't mean that it's truth. Because Mishnah and Talmud are just Jewish commentaries of God's Word, the Torah of the Hebrew Scriptures. They're just commentaries. They're no different than Jaber and McGee or Spurgeon or Matthew Henry. They can be helpful, but they are man's thoughts on God's Word. And while they can be helpful, they're human. And so they're subject to flaw. The difference is, Jesus says, Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus' words do not go down to the grave. Jesus' words hold fast. They are always true. They are always available. They are always steady and absolute. Which is why being in the Word is such a blessing. Because wherever we are in life, we can turn to the, to the Word and know, this is solid. I can trust this. God is our help. Notice the psalm, psalmist writes, How blessed is he, verse 5, whose help is the God of Jacob. Why does he say that? Well, because we have a history of watching God help Jacob, don't we? We can look at the whole history of Israel and say, you know what, God does help this people. God has preserved this people. God has kept this people down through the years. And the tragedies and the horrific things, God has always maintained this people. So how blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob and the second word, hope. God is not only our help, the Lord is our hope. Because our mortal salvation depends on the God-man. Watch this. Go back to verse 3. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. Mortal man is the word Adam. Adam. In Adam, there's no salvation. That is absolutely true. In Adam, there is but one thing. Death. Because Adam sinned, and so all sinned. Adam sinned and died, so all will die, because all sinned. Even if they didn't sin in the way that Adam sinned. Don't trust the first Adam. Well, I wouldn't trust Adam as far as I could throw him. I'm not talking about Adam personally. Every time we put our trust in man to get us through, instead of the Lord, we're putting our trust in Adam. 
Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not telling you, you know, students, I'm not saying don't trust your parents. And husbands, I'm not saying don't trust your wives and wives and your husbands and friends. I'm not saying don't trust each other. I'm saying don't put your trust in Adam. Don't put your trust in man. You put your trust not in the first Adam, but in the last Adam, because only in the last Adam is there salvation. Rick, what are you talking about? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. In verse 45 of 1 Corinthians 15, he goes on, he says, So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man, Adam, is from the earth. He's earthy. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. And as is the earthy, so are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, listen, as is the heavenly, listen, as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. What does that mean? Are you heavenly? Are you? Yes. Yes. If you are in Jesus Christ, the last Adam, who is heavenly, you are heavenly. You are a heavenly person. To become heavenly, it's simple. We talked about Sunday. You've got to be born again. You're born again of the one who is himself heavenly. The last Adam, Jesus. The one in whom we put our trust. Now, in the same conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus when they were talking on that one night and and Jesus told Nicodemus you have to be born again to see the kingdom in that same conversation he said down in verse 13 of John chapter 3 no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven the son of man the second Adam the one who is heavenly has come from heaven he says as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up as Jesus was on the cross so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. In other words, whoever puts their faith in Him, heavenly, becomes heavenly. Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus is our hope. So when He says, how blessed is the one whose help is the God of Jacob, He's looking back. When He says, whose hope is in the Lord is God, He's looking ahead. He's looking forward to the great hope that comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Now watch this truth unfold as the psalm continues. Verse 5. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice from the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but He thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Did you see it? Did you see it there? The Messianic explanation. The Messianic Explanation. What do you mean? John said in John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. That's what Jesus did in coming. Explained God, showed us God, revealed God to us. And the explanation for Psalm 146, the explanation is in the exploits of Jesus. And you just read them. Watch this. Go back. Verse 6. 
who made the heaven, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, Jesus, number one, created all things. And Jesus did. If you've read your Bibles at all, you know this. John 1, verse 3, All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Paul said in Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created. If anyone ever asked you, what did Jesus have to do with creation? You can answer, everything. It wasn't just Father. It wasn't just Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three actively involved in the creation, and Jesus was there. It says things both in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Jesus created all things. Secondly, Jesus keeps faith forever, the latter part of verse 6 tells us. Well, the faithfulness of God is displayed in Jesus Christ, eternally. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 tells us, God is faithful, through whom you are called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus keeps faith forever. Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. This is a description that begins to unfold before us of Jesus. He is the one who creates. He is the one who keeps faith. Look at verse 7. He executes judgment or justice for the oppressed. And the last part of verse 7, He sets the prisoners free. Well, that's Jesus. Executing justice, setting the prisoner free. Luke chapter 4 shows us Jesus kicking off His public ministry and He quotes... Isaiah 61 verse 1 that tells us the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners what does it say he sets the prisoners free well that's what Jesus does go on to verse 8 no no stay in verse 7 what's it say in the middle of the verse he gives food to the hungry Well, it's a fourth description of Jesus. Who else gave food to the hungry like Jesus did? Do you remember the story? He's out there in the region of uh, Bethsaida. Matthew chapter 14 tells us. And there in Bethsaida, Jesus looks around and says, Wow, these people look hungry. And the apostles say, Yeah, Jesus, they are hungry. Send them home so they can get something to eat. And Jesus says, Now you feed them. We can't do that. And Jesus says, Have them sit down. And he took the loaves and the fish and blessed them and they began to pass them out. Remember that? Matthew 15. Same thing happens again. Now he's in the Decapolis, a different region. And there in the Decapolis, he looks out. People are hungry. And so he begins to feed. Not 5,000 that time, but 4,000 the next time. He gives food to the hungry. By the way, what's the deal with that? Matthew 14, he feeds the 5,000. In Matthew 15, he feeds the 4,000. What's going on? Why? Why are both these stories back-to-back there in the book of Matthew? Some scholars have said, well, it's just a retelling of the same story. <laughs> Morons. The Bible's not retelling the story there. They are two distinct stories. The first one, 5,000 are fed, 12 baskets full are left, and it's in Bethsaida, a largely Jewish town. The second time, Matthew 15, seven baskets were left. It's in the region of the Decapolis. They are two different stories. The Decapolis is a Gentile area. Jesus was doing something remarkable here. He feeds the Jewish people first. And when they're done eating, twelve baskets are left. Why? 
the Lord's saying there's enough food for every one of the twelve tribes of Israel. There's leftover. I will feed my people Israel and there's enough to continue feeding all twelve tribes, twelve baskets left. When he feeds the Gentiles there in the Decapolis, I love this, seven baskets were left. Seven being the number of completion. In other words, salvation is complete for all the Gentiles. I will take care of Israel. I will take care of the Gentiles. I will give you bread, the bread of life. He gives food to the hungry. Which is what the psalmist just told us. Going on in verse (laughs) 8. This is the obvious one. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. He opens the eyes of the blind. Let me ask you this question, you Hebrew scholars. Did that ever happen in Hebrew history? I'm talking in the Old Testament. Not a single time. Jesus came later and opened the eyes of the blind. But in the days of the prophets, in the days of the patriarchs, not a single blind person, at least as far as we see in Scripture, not a single blind person was given their sight. Why is that? Because the giving sight to the blind was a messianic sign. It was talked about an awful lot. Isaiah 29, verse 18 Isaiah said, On that day the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 35, verse 5, The eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Isaiah 42, verse 18, Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. The blind receiving their sight, gang, was a messianic sign. The Jewish people understood it as such. When they heard this prophecy of the blind receiving sight, it was always in conjunction with the coming Messiah. How will we know when Messiah comes? He's going to be the one who gives sight to the blind. That was a number one sign of the coming Messiah. And verse 8 is marvelous. To me, it reads like an instruction manual for Messiah. If you're going to be Messiah, make sure that you can heal the blind. And Jesus did. If you're going to be Messiah... In fact, when John the Baptist was in prison, he was discouraged and he was depressed and he sent word to Jesus through his disciples. He said, go, go ask Jesus, are you the one? I mean, were we right to point everybody to you? Because if not, just let me know. Are you the one? Jesus answered, Matthew 11, verse 5, the blind receive sight. He says, the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. So He is the one who opens up the eyes of the blind, verse 8. He says going on, the Lord raises up those who are bowed down. Which is exactly what Jesus did. Raising up those who are bowed down, verse 9. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow. I love this. Jesus supported the fatherless and the widow. Unlike any, any prophet come before Him. Jesus comes along. And he and his apostles are entering the city of Nain. And as they're walking toward the city on that day, out comes a funeral procession. Jesus looks and starts heading right for the coffin. And you've got to know the apostles were freaking out. What are you doing? You don't know what he... And Jesus goes right up and puts his hand on the coffin. You see, Jesus understood what was going on. This was a widow's last son. So she didn't have a husband to care for her. She didn't have a son to look after her. Her son was dead and in this coffin. Jesus reaches out and touches the coffin, touches the dead guy, and raises him back to life and gives him back to his mother. And in one moment, he supported the fatherless and the widow. All at once. 
A powerful sign once again. Messiah is here. Psalm 146. This is what He does. Jesus never was one to leave dead enough alone. You know? (laughs) Number 9, verse 9. He thwarts the way of the wicked, which is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He thwarted the way of the wicked. The way of the wicked was death. And the cross thwarts death. Hold that thought while the plane flies over here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he's taken it out of the way. Having nailed it to the cross, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. He thwarts the way of the wicked at Calvary. And finally, verse 10 tells us, The Lord will reign forever, and is that not the promise of Messiah? Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, there will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace. It's all about Jesus, gang. Psalm 146, the declaration. We've had the kingdom declared in Psalm 145. We come into Psalm 146 and we have the last Adam described to us throughout. Praise the Lord. The help of Jacob and the hope of man, Jesus Christ, is coming. Praise the Lord. Speaking of the help of Jacob, the next psalm is a song to be sung exclusively by the Jewish people from Jerusalem. Psalm 147, verse 1. Praise the Lord. It is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant and praise is becoming. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds, as Isaiah 61 tells us. He counts the number of the stars And He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. You might make a note of this. The word infinite is also translated nothing. His understanding is nothing. What it means is His understanding goes out into even to nothingness. I mean, beyond we can't even comprehend how great His understanding is. It goes into places we've never been. Things we've never even considered. He is so great, so infinite. By the way, he says that uh, he counts the number of the stars. Okay, How many stars are there? Anybody know? A few? Huh? About the same as the sand? Actually, they say there are more stars in the heavens than there are grains of sand on the seashore. CNN Tech tells us that Australian astronomers estimate 70 sextillion stars in the known universe. 70 sextillion. Again, approaching the national debt. 70 sextillion stars. That's, check this out, that's 70,000 million million million. Or 70 followed by 22 zeros. That's, that's their estimate. They did that by taking kind of cutting a swath of stars out of the Milky Way, just a little section here, and counting everything in that section, and then extrapolating that out to the known universe. So even their guess of 70 sextillion may be off by a few. Incredible. It's only an estimate based on the range of telescopes looking out at the known universe. 70 followed by 22 zeros. How many of you saw that movie several years ago, Jodie Foster movie called Contact? 
Any of you remember that movie? Okay, some of you haven't seen it. Interesting movie. It was actually uh, based on a book, a story by Carl Sagan. Billions and billions and billions. This is Carl Sagan. And, and in this story, it's this whole thing about this, this uh, scientist, this girl, stargazer, listener, how she goes to outer space and comes back. And Interesting story. But the whole idea is she comes back at the end, and this is the key statement of the whole movie. She says, if we are alone, someone asks her, do you believe there's life on other planets? And she says, if we are alone in the universe, it seems like an awful waste of space. And I heard that and went, <laughs> awful waste of space. That was kind of the whole thing, the gist of this movie. Well, then why are there so many stars? Listen, the stars were not created to satisfy our scientific curiosity. I used to think that might be a good reason. The stars were not created to fill a lover's evening with romance. The stars were not even created to light the night sky so much as what Psalm 148 verse 3 tells us. Look ahead. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all stars of light. That's why the stars were created, to praise God. First and foremost, see what, here's the difference between the kingdom mindset and the earthly mindset. The kingdom mindset, it's all about the king. Why are the stars there? Because they, they honor the king. The earthly mindset says, well, it's an awful big waste of space. And the earthly mindset says, well, maybe there's life out there, too. The earthly mindset looks at it from a man-sized perspective. The kingdom mindset looks at it from a God-sized perspective. Every star that lights the sky is there to bring honor and glory and praise to God. That's why so many stars. That's why the vast universe, because we look out at it and we say, wow. As we just sang. You know, I consider the stars of night, the galaxies, all that you've set in motion, it, it, it's mind-boggling. And what it does to the heart of the believer is make you say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 40, 26, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. The finite stars praise the infinite God. That's why they're there. Praise the Lord. Verse 6, the Lord supports the afflicted. He brings down the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God on the lyre. Who covers the heavens with clouds. Who provides rain for the earth. Who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord favors those who fear Him. Those who wait for His loving kindness or literally for His grace. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For He has strengthened the bars of your gates. That's security. And He has blessed your sons within you. And that's progeny. He's given them security and the strength of their bars. And progeny in the people. Offspring. This is a song that can only truly be sung in the coming kingdom. And as I alluded to in prayer earlier, gang, don't be surprised if the Psalms are our hymn book in the Millennial Kingdom. That wouldn't surprise me a bit. 
As the hymn books get passed out, we look down, hey, Psalm 1, hey, we studied this one. You know, Psalm 2, this is all the Psalms. Why not? This psalm, I believe, will be sung when kingdom comes because the result will be the people of Israel, especially praising God from Jerusalem. That's the result. But what's the reason? How does he bring all these wonderful things about? Read on, verse 14. He makes peace in your borders. He satisfies you with the finest of the wheat. He sends forth His command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts forth His ice's fragments. Who can stand before His cold? He sends forth His word and melts them. He causes His wind to blow and the waters to flow. He declares His words to Jacob, His statutes and His ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for His ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. No other nation, no other nation has been given what Israel has been given. No other nation has the understanding, the grasp of God's ordinances as was given to Israel. But for all of that, gang, the reason it was given to Israel was so that He might do something wonderful for all the nations. He focuses in on Israel. He gives them all these blessings so that He might bless the entire world through them. And like the psalm before, we center in again on the Christ of Israel, the Messiah, Jesus. Go back to verse 14. He makes peace within your borders. Note this, Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Peace. Shalom. Shlomo. Solomon. It's all the same word. Peace. But the greater than Solomon is the one who will bring ultimate peace to this world. Spencer came up to me on Sunday. I hope you don't mind me quoting. And I'm not joking around with Spencer. This was a serious moment, which I know are a few between Spencer and I, but this was good. Spencer came up and he said, Rick, I got it. He said, Friday night, during worship, I was sitting there and the worship was going on and I got it. I, I get it. He said, as we were singing, it hit me. When we pray, and I'm, I'm just paraphrasing here, when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're praying for Jesus. Because Jesus is Himself the peace of Jerusalem. And I went, you know, that is absolutely right. I, I never... I've never put it that way, that specifically. And that is right on target. You know, I've said when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is praying for the peace of Jerusalem. But the peace of Jerusalem is not an occasion, it's a person. It is Jesus. He is our peace. And Paul said as much in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 13, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. He makes peace in your borders. Down in verse 15, His Word runs very swiftly. And down in verse 18, He sends forth His Word. Oh, I skipped one. Wait a minute. Not only does He make peace, Jesus is our peace. He satisfies with the finest of wheat. The finest of wheat. Jesus is our bread. He satisfies with the finest of wheat. Now, get this. This is gluten-free, Jesus. Right? A lot of people not eating gluten right now. It's a problem with gluten in our world. But Jesus is gluten-free. He is the finest of wheat. 
He feeds, he satisfies like nothing else can. Jesus said, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will not hunger. So Jesus is our peace, he's our, our bread, that finest of wheat. At verse 8, 15 again, his word runs swiftly. Verse 18, he sends forth his word. Verse 19, he declares his word. Jesus is the word. He is our peace. He is our bread. He is the Word of God incarnate. Jesus, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1, verse 14. And Jesus, whose name, Revelation 19.13, is called the Word of God. He's our peace. He's the finest of wheat. He is the Word. And again, Jesus is the reason for the resulting kingdom. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Psalm 148. In Psalm 148, we get to hear now praise across the entire spectrum of creation. The entire spectrum. This is just awesome. Watch this. First, we're called to praise Him in the heavens. Verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all stars of light. Praise Him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. He has also established them forever and ever. He has made a decree which will not pass away. Praise Him in the heavens. Psalmist says, every high and lofty thing, everything that's above Him, praise Him. Why? Because He is above every high and lofty thing. He is higher than the high. He is God most high. Above and beyond all the things in the heights. Going on in verse 7, Praise the Lord from the earth. Sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds fulfilling His word, mountains and all hills and fruit trees and all cedar, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and winged fowl, kings of earth and all peoples, princes, and all judges of earth, both young men and virgins, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. Praise Him in the heavens. Praise Him from the earth. Praise Him from both directions. Now, you might think it a little weird that the psalmist here is calling for the beasts and the cattle and the creeping things and the winged fowl to be praising the Lord. Do they? Some would say an animal just functioning in the way it's created brings honor to God. You know, praises the Lord. In the same way that the created stars, by giving off light, praise the Lord. So the animal kingdom, and we can look and see, absolutely fascinating. When you start to study the animal kingdom, and some of the weird ones, I've mentioned my favorite one, the duck-billed platypus. Who else but God could come up with that? And as you look through all the different kinds of creatures and animals and, and their gifts and abilities and what they do, that alone is praise to the Lord. But it gets better. There is a time coming, and I just this just tickles me. There is a time coming when beasts and cattle and creeping things and winged fowl and all creatures that walk upon the face of the earth will open up their mouths and praise the Lord. What? When? It's a moment. Sometime just after the rapture of the church, 
just before probably Jesus breaks the first seal of that, of that scroll that begins the tribulation. Listen to this, Revelation chapter 5, verse 15. Every created thing, and the word created thing is ketisma, which means literally all the animals. Every created thing, which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, John writes, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, blessing and glory and honor and dominion forever and ever. Every created thing. Which is going to freak out those who are left behind. Can you imagine? You're about to feed your dog. And he sits up and he goes, To him who sits on the throne! And to the Lamb, blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever! Right back down to eating. The cows in the field, you know how you drive down from here down toward Oak Harbor and there's all those cows on the left side there on that big pasture? Can you imagine? They're all out there grazing and they just sit up. Praise the Lord! All at once. Rick, this sounds, this sounds fantastic and, and, and kind of crazy. I didn't write scripture. I'm not the one who saw and heard it. John wrote it. Because, gang, the reality is, if the rocks won't praise God, if the people won't praise God, even the stones will. And Jesus said as much in Luke 19.40, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Well, guess what? The church is raptured. The church is called out. All those who have faith in Jesus, all those who have been worshiping, suddenly are not here any longer. And no one's praising God. And so the stones are going to cry out. Every created thing, all creatures, katisma, will in a moment bust out in praise. I can't even imagine. But I have told you, and the Bible's clear on this, after the church is taken and the tribulation begins to unfold on planet Earth, things get weird and wild and even horrifying. Because suddenly that line between the natural and the supernatural gets busted wide open. And God begins to reveal Himself to this planet in ways that people have not seen. Praise Him from the earth. Praise Him in the heights. And finally, praises here now from the people. Verse 14, He has lifted up a horn for His people. Praise for all His godly ones, even for the sons of Israel, a people near to Him. Praise the Lord. Now the horn here. A horn speaks of greatness. It speaks of authority and honor. But this is a fascinating statement that closes out the psalm. Because we get this picture of praise throughout the heights, praise throughout the planet, throughout earth, and praise from His people. All His people. What are you talking about? Look. Praise for all His godly ones, even for the sons of Israel. Now, the way that looks to us, looks like it's just saying the godly ones are the sons of Israel. That's... That's not what I believe is intended here. Praise for all His godly ones. The word godly ones is Hasid. And Hasid in the Hebrew has a parallel word in the Greek, Hagios, and it means saints. Praise is from all of His people, those His saints. And for the sons of Israel, a people near Him. Godly ones are saints, faithful ones. And then sons of Israel, B'nai Yisrael, talking about, of course, the Jewish people. And what I believe is being intimated here in verse 14, 
is a glorious combination. Praise now is called not just from Israel, but is called from all His godly ones, those who are around the throne, you and me, the church, those who have faith in Jesus and Israel all together, because this psalm is the entire spectrum of praise. From the highest of heights to the depths of the earth, to every living being, be it Israel or be it the church, praise the Lord. It's drawing all of us together. Now we'll note this, even in this glorious combination of all people, the sons of Israel have a special sentence attached to them. They are a people near Him. And that draws back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7, where Moses said, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call upon Him? In the highest of heights, to the depths of the sea, to the people of Israel, and to you and to me. Hey, that kind of rhymes. All the way around, praise the Lord. Psalm 149 now continues as a praise from all God's people, the entire collection of God's people. Watch this. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Let Israel be glad in His Maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their King. Let them praise His name with dancing. Let them sing praises to Him with timbrel and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. Let the godly ones exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Okay, so you have the people of Israel again, and then in verse 5, you have the godly ones. But note this. As this psalm opens up in praise, and the praise continues rolling and continues going, it tells us in verse 4, the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. You know what makes you beautiful in the eyes of God? When you say, Jesus, save me. It's the person who repents and confesses that now can be made what they were supposed to be. That now can become beautiful in the eyes of God. God's desire from day one, from the first day of creation, even before that, God's desire has been to comfort the poor and lowly ones. To save the lost. To beautify the afflicted. Some of you are familiar with this. Some of you aren't. So I just want to point it out to you again. Keep your finger there and go all the way back to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5, which is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. And all it is, is the line of Seth. It's a lineage. But I love it so much because we hear the heartbeat of God behind the flesh and blood of this lineage. You hear this heart beating out, the message of the Gospel, the Gospel truth. If you haven't heard this, listen, and if you had, you can just check your notes on this. But if you go down each one of these names in Genesis chapter 5, name by name by name, and take the meaning of each one of their names and put them together as a sentence, something amazing emerges. Something embedded right here early on in the line that runs from Adam all the way down to Noah. Adam's name means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means subject to death. And Kenan means sorrowful. Adam, verse 3, man. Appointed, verse 6. 
Subject to death, verse 9. Sorrowful, verse 12. That's how creation started, is it not? Adam was created and appointed to keep watch over the whole earth and to take care of all things. But he sinned and became subject to death. And for the first time in Adam's created life, he became sorrowful. Mahalalel, verse 15, means from the presence of God. Jared means in verse 18, one comes down. Enoch means, verse 21, dedicated. Methuselah means dying, he shall send. Lamech, verse 28, means to the poor and lowly ones. And Noah, verse 32, means rest or comfort. Again, put it together. Man appointed subject to death, sorrowful from the presence of God. One comes down. Who's that? Jesus. Dedicated. Dying he shall send to the poor and lowly rest and comfort. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's remarkable to me that all the way back in the very beginning of things, and I'll point this out another time in just a few minutes here, all the way back early on, before we even realized the prophets were talking, God was talking. God was preparing His Gospel. You can go back further than that to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 and verse, what is it, 20, uh, 16. Earlier, verse 15. God is cursing the serpent. Because the serpent has deceived the woman. And, and in the curse of the serpent, he puts this statement out here. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, or crush you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And that is what's called the Proto-Evangelicum. The first mention of the Gospel in Scripture right there. Where? Between your seed and her seed. There's a... a a hint at the miraculous there. Because woman doesn't have seed. Woman has an egg. But God said, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed. There is a woman coming who will have a seed miraculously placed within her. That seed, of course, being Jesus by the Holy Spirit. God has been working on this for a long, long time. Working on what? Beautifying the afflicted ones back in Psalm 149 with salvation. That's been the heart of God. The king bringing his kingdom, but he wants his kingdom filled with those who were once afflicted, now beautiful by his hand. Verse 6, back in 149. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth, and I love this combination, and a two-edged sword in their hand. Learn the best way to stand as a Christian in this world. There it is, verse 6. Praising God, worship in your mouth, and the word in your hand. Verse 6. Verse 7. To execute vengeance on the nations, and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains, and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is an honor for His godly ones. Praise the Lord. Wait a minute now. I thought there weren't supposed to be any more curses in these psalms. I thought we were supposed to just write out on praise. This isn't a curse. This isn't a curse here. It's a statement of fact. In fact, have you noticed what's going on here as we're walking these praises out? You notice that if you go back to Psalm 145, it's the declaration of the kingdom, which is what Jesus began with at the beginning of His public ministry. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And you go into Psalm 146 and it's all about the ministry of Jesus when He was here, giving sight to the blind, raising up those who are down. 
He was here for the afflicted, for the oppressed. You go on into Psalm 147. And it's all about the word of the Lord to Israel, the promise of their restoration, which comes after. You know, Jesus first was here. It comes at the time of coming into Jesus' return. We're already seeing it happen. As the Jews are being drawn back to the land. But their restoration is yet to come and will come by Jesus. And then suddenly, Psalm 148, there's this amazing breakout of praise that goes on. And the heavens on the earth, all over the place. Psalm 149, suddenly we're back talking about Israel and, and the, the people of God and how God saves. This whole thing is this progression from the coming of Jesus and the first promise of His kingdom all the way out to the very end when we will just praise Him and praise Him for eternity. And what's happening here at the end of Psalm 149 is fantastic. This judgment of nations is what's being declared here. To execute on them the judgment written. The judgment's coming. Jesus is going to come and rule and reign. But when He returns, note this, He will not be received with open arms. At the return of Jesus, when He comes in the clouds with great glory... It's not going to be the world saying, Hallelujah! The Hallelujahs are going to be coming from behind Jesus. But what happens, this is just amazing to me. Daniel chapter 11, verse 44. He's talking about Antichrist. An Antichrist on the move. And this, this man of lawlessness, this man of sin is moving forward. And, and it says, Rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. And he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. And he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the sea, that's the Mediterranean, and the beautiful holy mountain, that is Jerusalem. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Which, if it weren't Antichrist, you would almost say is tragic. If he didn't have it coming to him, you'd almost feel bad for him, because in that moment what happens is Satan, who has used Antichrist, gets him all the way to the point where he's through with him, and then Satan leaves him to die. And all those who've been following him start to turn on him, and the world turns against him. They would think three and a half years, seven years actually earlier, they would think of him as the man of peace, and within a short amount of time, seven years is all it will take for them to realize what a despicable man of lawlessness he is. The world turns, and there's this massive battle that takes place in the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon. And in that moment, suddenly, Revelation 19.19 says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. What's going on? Man, you piece it together, this battle is raging there in the valley of Megiddo and the clouds break apart and Jesus starts coming through the clouds in glory and great power and all the people on earth in war at that time, all of those fighting, look up, see Jesus and say, Fire! And turn their weapons on Him. And they won't get a shot off. Because in an instant, it will be done. Jesus will wipe all of it out. He effectively puts down the host, the armies of planet Earth. And then, then comes what's talked about right here. To execute vengeance on the nations, punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. And Jesus begins then, after this, the judgment of nations. He talks about it in Matthew 25. Where he separates the nations like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
And the defining characteristic of those nations that are saved or those peoples that are saved and those who are not, in that moment, the defining characteristic is those who cared for the least of these brothers of Jesus, Israel. The sheep are saved because they cared for Israel. And when I say saved, I'm not talking eternally. I mean saved to go on into the millennial kingdom to keep their lives those who turned against Israel fought against the Lord the goats will not be saved but you might wonder in this execution of judgment what does it mean this is an honor for all his godly ones what honor is he talking about well this is the fun part because we return with him you've studied this you students of revelation you know this we come back with him when he returns we come too The church caught up. We're with Jesus during the tribulation, during this hell on earth for that seven years. And the Bible's clear about this. Revelation 19, verse 14, the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. And I know some say, well, that says the armies in heaven. Yeah, but look at what they're wearing. They're wearing fine linen, white and clean. Same thing that the church is wearing in verse 7 of that chapter following him now on white horses. Besides the fact there's more scriptural backing, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all the people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his Saints. Let me read that last verse again. At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. And the word saints is hagios, which talks about the church. Not angels. Angels will come too. But that's angelos in the Greek. Hagios is the saints of the church and we come back with Him. We return when He does. And again, verse 9 then says, to execute on them the judgment written, this is an honor for all His Godly ones. Here's the picture, gang. The church, having been raptured, saved from the tribulation, now returns with Jesus to rule and reign in the millennial kingdom. But the honor is more than simply our presence. The honor is more than just the fact that we're there. With the exception of God's curse on the serpent that we looked at, Genesis 3.15. It's the earliest prophecy that we have on record. A prophecy given... Jude tells us in the seventh generation from Adam, that would be roughly seven to nine hundred years, somewhere in there after creation. In the first millennium, about midway, a little past halfway, the first millennium of planet Earth's existence, this prophecy came, a prophecy spoken by Enoch in Jude verse 14. Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones, Hagios, saints, to execute judgment upon all. What are you getting at? What I think is being said as we put this all together is the honor of His godly ones, the honor of the saints, will be the execution of His judgment. Are you saying that we're executioners? No. The execution of His judgment, the honor that is now placed on us, is the carrying out of His decrees. 
And again, it goes back to what we've talked about many times. The idea that we rule and reign with Him in His administration into the Millennial Kingdom. The honor, gang, is that if you have faith in Jesus Christ now, faith without seeing, faith in this age, and you're caught up and you're part of the church raptured when you come back with Him, the distinct and singular honor of the saints of God is you get to serve with Him in His Kingdom. You execute judgment. You're part of His righteous administration throughout the world. And it's a a huge honor and a singular honor for the church. It's not an honor for Israel. They have a different honor. It's not an honor for those who are saved out of the tribulation. They have a different honor. It's a specific honor for the church of Jesus Christ, the godly ones. And Jesus says in Revelation 3.21, He who overcomes, and this blows my mind, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. We used to have this big, overstuffed, lazy boy in our house. Big, brown leather chair. You know, leaned back and the whole thing, a little footrest came up. And I remember vividly as a little kid, crawling into that chair alongside my dad and just sitting there watching TV or reading a book or he'd have the newspaper open, you know, and I'd be playing with my little cars on the side. But I remember that and and it's something of that when Jesus says, I'm going to grant you the right to sit down with me on my throne. Scoot over and say, come on up, have a seat with me. And there from my throne, this, this is my kingdom. And you get to rule. You get to be part of this. It's a singular honor, the execution of His judgment. Praise the Lord. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Now my original intention was just to read that and be done. But then I found some stuff out I have to tell you. (laughs) On every annual holy day among the Jews today they have a song that they joyfully sing before opening up the Torah in, in the morning services. And this song, uh, they begin singing Adonai, Adonai, El Rachum V'Chanun. And what that means literally is it's the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. They sing Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. They sing this song. Now what's interesting in Talmud, it's just a commentary, mind you, but in the Talmud, what the rabbis did was they went through Exodus 34, God's self-declaration, and they pulled out 13 attributes of God. 13 attributes. Here they are. Adonai is the first attribute, which is, they, they say, it's His compassion before a person sins. 
before a person sins, Adonai. And then the second Adonai, because it says the Lord, the Lord, the second Adonai is compassion after a person sins. Before and after a person sins, Adonai, Adonai. Number three is El, meaning God. And they say, He is mighty in compassion to give all creatures according to their need. The fourth attribute, Rachum, which is merciful, that humankind may not be distressed. The fifth attribute is Hanun, gracious. If humankind is already in distress, he's gracious. Number six, Arach Apayim, which means slow to anger. The, the seventh attribute, Rav Chesed, plenteous in mercy. The eighth attribute, Emet, which means truth. He is truth in and of himself. The ninth attribute, Notzer Chesed La'at Lafim, keeping mercy to thousands. And of course, in the Hebrew, thousands means thousands of generations. On and on, offering his mercy. The tenth attribute of God, Nose Avon, which is forgiving iniquity. The eleventh attribute, Nose Pasha, which is forgiving uh, transgression. The twelfth attribute, Nose Chata'ah, which is forgiving sin. You can tell I'm not Hebrew. And the thirteenth attribute of God, interesting, is Lo Yenache. Lo Yenache, which is not pardoning the guilty. Okay, that's the justice aspect of God. He doesn't pardon those who are guilty, only those who are innocent. But Rick, I'm guilty. Not if you're in Christ, you're not. You're pardoned. You are saved. Why am I telling you about this with Psalm 150? Well, what's interesting, and I'm going to encourage you to do this for homework. Open up Exodus 34, look at the 13 attributes of God there, and compare each one of these attributes to the 13 praises that are offered in Psalm 150, because that's what they do. They'll take the first. Praise the Lord, Adonai. Praise the Lord, Adonai. Praise God in His sanctuary, El. Uh, praise Him for His mighty deeds, Rachum, and they go through each one. And the old rabbis believe that Psalm 150 directly corresponds line for line with the 13 attributes of God that God gives in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Now that's intriguing to me. Certainly we have at least 13 attributes of God to praise Him for. I think we have far more than 13. Far more than 13 reasons to praise the Lord. But here's the last thing I want to leave you with. When you read Psalm 150, you notice it's the psalm that that really uh, strikes up the band. All right. This is the one where praise him with trumpet and harp and lyre and timbrel and stringed instruments and pipe and loud cymbals and resounding cymbals. It just breaks out the whole, all these instruments. Do you know that of these instruments listed here, not a single one originated in Israel. Every one of these instruments have pagan origin. Every one of these instruments of praise came from heathen cultures. I think that's awesome. Because it means that anything can be redeemed and used for the Lord. Anything can be drawn out of where it was and offered up as praise and worship and honor to the Lord. It means that from the lyre to the electric guitar, there is redemption. From the timbrel to Galen's drums, it can be used to praise the Lord from a restored Jew to a redeemed 
you. We come out of the heathen culture. That's us. Gang, that is us. We come out of the pagan culture. We are the Gentiles who have come out of heathenism and paganism without a hope. We were not a people. Now we are a people in the Lord. And we praise the Lord because we ourselves are instruments of redemption. Praise the Lord. Let's stand up together. What a fantastic book. Uh, a workshop on praise, but we've discovered it's, it's been so much more. Prophecy and truth that speaks of Jesus on almost every single page. And we've been blessed to have this time in these 150 psalms. I'd like to end it tonight by reading Psalm 150 together. So if you have your Bible, pick them up and open them back up. (laughs) Psalm 150, beginning together in verse 1. Here we go. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with temporal and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we praise You tonight. Oh God, we worship You. And it just sends chills up my spine, Lord, to think about how things are rolling up this hill toward the final consummation of all things when, Lord, we will worship and praise and enjoy You like we never have before. And Father, I pray that we would have that kingdom mindset, that we'd be looking forward, looking up the hill, and chasing that ball of praise and coming to You with all that we are and all that we have. Father, I pray that as we walk with Jesus, the things of this life would begin to grow pale and dim and would not satisfy us. I pray against those things, that all the the hopes and dreams that we might have for this life alone, Lord, that they would just become distant thoughts compared to the joy of being with You. May that hope fill our hearts, O God. May praise be on our lips, Your Word in our hands, and Your Spirit in our spirits, leading us ever forward. And we love You, Lord. And God, we praise You with all that we are. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Now listen, next Wednesday night, I'm out of town, but we're going to have worship and Les will be here. And next Wednesday is your chance to bring a psalm, a favorite one. You don't have to share, so don't just say, I'm not going to make me share. No, come. You don't have to share. You don't even have to say you know, what your favorite psalm is, but I encourage you to. Of the 150, what's your favorite one? And just think about that between this week and next, and as a, as a family, we'll share that together. And I hate missing that, but I'm going to be out of town, so uh, I will be here Sunday. So I'll see you then. We'll start Proverbs. God bless you all.